0: This is a recording made in the Chapel of the Open Book, is number 10, and the last of the series dealing with the hope of resurrection. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read the Epistle of Jude. This evening... (coughs) we are considering a few problems that are associated with the hope of resurrection. And I want to make it clear at the beginning (coughs) that I'm not standing here as the one who's got all the answers. I most certainly have given many of these things (coughs) a great deal of consideration, but I should be very wrong if I left with you the slightest idea that I hadn't got any problems, the trouble is, I don't know who to ask to help me to get the answers, you see. <laughs> there comes to our mind a word in connection with a hope. Our, the Apostle Paul said, because we have such a hope, we use great plainness of speech. And I can imagine somebody didn't get that out and using it against me. Because our subject is the hope, and the Apostle Paul said he had great plainness of speech. But, of course, if we go to the passage that is quoted there, that is referring to the difference between the uh, veiled face of Moses and the unveiled face of Jesus Christ. And so, you see, Paul could stand in a dispensation where the mosaic difficulties were all explained. But when you and I get to the last epistles of our calling, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, There's no more written by anybody else to tell us where some things are a little bit left obscure. So I quote another passage with regard to this, that the same apostle that said one thing, he said, But now we see through a glass darkly, or now we see by means of a mirror enigmatically, but then, face to face, now we know in part, but then shall we know even as we are known. So you see, coming right up to our own times, and the time of the Apostle himself, he said there were some things that were still left a little bit obscure, and I have a feeling it's in the wisdom of God that it should be so. For you know the sort of person in the ordinary, average uh, things, that sort of person who knows all the answers, well, is not a very helpful friend, and sometimes can cause a good deal of harm. So I've prepared your mind, haven't I? To say, look, here's a puzzle. We'll all face it, but if we can't answer it, well... Let's be honest about it. Now, I purposely left a little bit woolly when we were dealing with the question last time. Uh, I faced the fact that the Apostle Paul used an expression that had caused the disciples to stop and ask what the out resurrection of the dead could mean. And the Apostle said that although he was perfectly certain of his salvation and the blessed hope that was in front of him, he said, not as though I had already attained. He said, I, I pray that I may have fellowship with his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the out-resurrection, that which is out from among the dead. And I never told you just what the out-resurrection stood for. And you know why, don't you? You guess. Because I don't know. It may mean that there would be a segregation of the Lord's people who will have a resurrection that anticipates the general resurrection, takes place a little before in time. Or on the other hand, it may mean a segregation of the Lord's people, who will not be separated in time, but just as a company. So if it's been a left a little bit unexplained, it's in good hands, friends, for the Lord who's going to reward any one of us in that day won't say, Oh, dear, dear, I forgot to make arrangements. All the arrangements are complete. And we can rest perfectly assured that it will be completely answered in that day. Now, having said that, there is such a thing as an analogy in Scripture. That is to say, we go to some other part of Scripture, dealing with some other calling, and we say, well, that's what happened there. And there's a possibility that it will happen there. So, shall we turn once more to a passage you know full well, Revelation 20, Well, now you're going to get an interval between one resurrection and another that will last a thousand years. Now, I'm not saying that there's going to be a thousand hours or a thousand days in between the one and the other with regard to what the Apostle said, but here we have an evidence that there can be a a gap between a resurrection that is to do do with an overcomer and a prize winner and the resurrection of the rest of the dead. So, shall we look at that in passing? Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So there's the emphasis. They not only lived, but they reigned. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years are finished. So there's a gap of a thousand years that's stated without any further comment. This is the first resurrection. Now that word first is translated in chapter 21 verse 4 by the word former. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, not a sorrow, nor crying, Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away, and that's the meaning of the word. The former resurrection. Now the former resurrection implies a subsequent one. So this is one of a pair. And the other resurrection is at the end of the millennium when the prize winner is gone through and has reached the goal, and then there's a judgment according to works at the great white throne. And if you'll remember the seven churches of the book of the Revelation, to him that overcometh, that's repeated seven times, and I know thy works, that's repeated seven times. But the pity of it is we've handed over the great white throne judgment to the universal judgment of the whole ungodly world, and we make a little bit of nonsense of the next verse that waits us in Revelation 20. Shall I read it? I'll read verse 5 again but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the former resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first or the former resurrection. On such, the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So whatever the second death means for those in the second category, these are exempt in the Churches, it's also said, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. And if that simply means salvation, it's telling us something we know already. For if a person is redeemed, he'll never have his name blotted out of the book of life. God has assured that. So we've assumed that the book of life means the book of eternal life, and then we get our puzzles. The only other place where the book of life is mentioned, apart from the book of the Revelation, is in the one epistle that's got the out resurrection. And the prize. So the book of life is the book of the martyrs. And you find that it's a martyr that's being addressed in Revelation chapter 2. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, and I will not blot your name out. So you see, piecing together we begin to realize that there is a special place that God has in his heart and mind for him that stands firm and overcomes witnesses for Christ against a pressure he never lets it go unnoticed. In the one case there's a tremendous interval between the two resurrections. In the one that we are just having in mind with regard to Philippians 3, we don't know what interval or whether there will be. <coughs> All we know that there is a distinction drawn and God will make it very evident in that day because there'll be no option so far as we are concerned. Well that's one little piece that I thought perhaps might be worth airing. Because years ago, I had quite a number of folks telling me that if a person who had attained to the spiritual position of the Apostle Paul had died, if you'd only opened his grave three days after, you would find he was gone. Of course, the trouble is you can't get the grave open, and so they were teaching that, and people were opening their mouths and swallowing the teaching. Well, I think that's not true. I don't think there's any truth in that. But what I think is one thing. Shall we turn to the scriptures and test that thought by another passage? 2 Timothy, chapter 2. 2 Timothy, chapter 2. Before I get to the verse, I'll just pick up again what I left off about this out-resurrection. The same epistle that speaks of that says in chapter 3, from whence we look for a saviour who shall change this body of our humiliation, that it may be fashioned like unto his body of glory, from whence we look for a saviour. That doesn't look as though it was sudden death, sudden glory in that case. They were still waiting. The only thing is that they will be a special company. Well, now we have in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, that, in fact, that emphasis upon the principle of right division. But you may say to me, well, you're not going to drag right division into the question of the resurrection, are you? I'm not dragging it in, friends. That's why the Apostle put this here, as far as I can see in the first instance. He wasn't thinking about me someday writing a book on dispensational truth and put it in for my benefit. He's speaking about what was going on in the church at that time. And there were some who were going wrong, not with regard to the fact of resurrection, they believed that, not with regard to the difficulties of our resurrection. They left those, but they were wrong with regard to the time. So rightly dividing the time, that's Revelation 20, or rightly dividing the time, that's 2 Timothy 2, so we'll read on. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but, he's still going on the same theme, shun profane and vain babblings. For they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus. Now these are names that were known to these people, and they were possibly teachers in the assembly. They had an influence. Who concerning the truth have heard, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Well now, if they were teaching that the resurrection of Christ was past already, that's a glorious truth, isn't it? Now is Christ risen from the dead to die no more. So the essence of their error was they simply put it in the wrong time. If they said the resurrection of the believer was past already, then that would bring chaos in the mind and a good deal of concern. And he says it is, it's eating like a canker and it's overthrowing the faith of some. So, you see. Now, one of the um, points that I made when I was meeting this particular difficulty, I said to one of these folks who were speaking about, you see, they based it on this. They said, we are raised together with Christ now. Potentially, you see. Now, I said, if you will look at the original, you'll find this fact. That the word anastasis, which means resurrection, is never associated with the word together with. Never. Anastasis is the standing up in resurrection. But there's another word translated arise, which we've looked at. That's egairo, which means to wake out of sleep. Now that is the word that comes in Ephesians 2. It isn't soon anisthemi, it's sunegairo. God knows what he means. He says, we are wakened, wakened together with him. And he tells us that though the outward man is perishing, the inward man that's wakened is now being renewed, but we're not in resurrection glory yet. We're awakened with him, but we're still waiting the day when resurrection in its reality should be reached. So be careful before you swallow any teaching to make sure it's based upon the actual words which the Spirit of God has given to our, to guide us. Now, should we turn to another favourite distortion? You uh, meet it many times, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. Some of these things, of course, you know already, uh, but that's a part of my business. I I mustn't assume that all the readers know all the answers, otherwise we'd sing hymns and go home, wouldn't we? 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. First of all, let's get a little light on this, because it's, uh, apart from any problems in it, it's a passage that we do well to ponder, and we should go back into the chapter 4, uh, just to see the way in which this is introduced. Verse 16, for this which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. So there is the beginning in this present life, of the new life started. It's renewed day by day. Those who put their trust in Christ according to John's Gospel, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. There's something happened. There is plenty more in front of them before life, which is life indeed, is attained. So it's renewed day by day. For our light affliction, now the man who said that has given us a list of afflictions that would paralyze most of us. When you read the things that the man went through before he wrote these words, he's, he's written to the Corinthians about it. He's given them verse after verse of being beaten and scourged and shipwrecked and starved. And to the very same people, he says, that's a light affliction. What well, have the man no sense and no feeling? always well, he says, I'll tell you why. It's because I've got my eye on something infinitely better. Moses endured as seeing him that is invisible and so he could esteem the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Not because he didn't know the value of gold and all it's want to obtain, but he had in mind the recompense of the reward that the right hand. So here, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us. Do notice it's a thing that works. It's not a vague thing. Let patience have its perfect work. It worketh for us. A far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. While, oh yes, it doesn't do that for everybody. They're so taken up with the affliction that they never get the view of the glory. And so they're beaten. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For, now you see, this chapter leads straight off from that. For we know that if the earthly house of ours, which is a tent, you see, it's rather awkward English, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, an earthly house of this tabernacle, I wonder what the boy at school will get for writing that, you see, but it it needs to be revised. This genitive is sometimes a difficult thing. We'll put it again a bit more reasonable. For we know that if the earthly house, which is a tent, That's what it is. This um, earthly house of ours is a tent. If that were dissolved, taken down, packed up and put away, a tent, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So here's here's the pilgrim character with his tent. And he's going through the land of wilderness and desert and parched and waterless. But he's carrying with him, according to Hebrews 11, the title deeds, as I think you know. Faith is the title deeds of things hoped for. So he doesn't need your commiseration. He's not living in a tent just because he likes it. He's living in a tent because he has in view a better country and a better city. Just the same as Abraham and those with him. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now the one thing this man said, he did not want to be in a disembodied state, to be found naked. He would be very glad to get rid of this, but he wanted to be clothed upon. As you remember, in the uh, parallel passage, uh, it goes that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Next verse. Now that word swallowed has already been used in 1 Corinthians, so they would remember it most likely. Death is swallowed up in victory when this mortal shall put on immortality. So there's not the slightest idea that the apostle was wishing that he could uh, die and go straight away to some disembodied state in a paradise waiting for a future day of resurrection. I suppose you know that Tyndall, who died at the stake in order to give us the translation of the Bible in English, which underlies most of our authorised version, he said himself that if this teaching which was going about with regard to this intermediate state were true, what need was there at the end of time to bring them all back and raise them from the dead? Well, you think most people would cut the conclusion that that seems strange? and yet they accept both things at the same time. So it says here, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan. Twice it says it, we groan. God doesn't minimise the fact that this is a a world in which the whole creation groaneth. But we were looking at Romans the 8th chapter at our Wednesday meeting, and we got to the point in Romans the 8th chapter that it comes three times. The creation groans. And we who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan. But then it says, and the Spirit groans himself. He's sharing. God is in it. He's not standing apart from it. So there's a sympathy here, although we have to go through with it. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan being burdened. Not for that we would be unclosed, but closed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Then comes the... um, Verse that is so often partly quoted. Verse 9. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. It said like that. You might get a nice little card with it printed on. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Leaving in the mind, leaving in the mind, that that's what the Apostle taught. But what he said was this. Wherefore we labour, that whether absent, Present or absent, which may be accepted of him. Verse eight, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We are willing to exchange the one for the other, but it doesn't give any idea of time. You remember in Philippians, he said, if he had his option, he would gladly depart and be with Christ, which is far better than he said, I'm going to stay for your benefit. That's the spirit of Philippians, not putting himself. But But neither passage teaches that there was no interval between the two. It simply expresses the feeling that, Oh, I wish this were all over, and the glory had come, as many a child of God has expressed. So let's, when we do quote scripture, let's see to it that we do quote it, and not misquote the scriptures. And I wouldn't, uh, if I were you, I would keep a little self-made rule. Never argue with a closed Bible. For you'll find the best of us will misquote it somewhere and put a word in or leave a word out, quite honestly. But keep it open and not only to look at the verse you're quoting, but very many times in the very next verse or the context is the answer you're both arguing about and haven't seen. So here we have then another one. All the Apostle is saying that with the circumstances of his life, the afflictions that he'd gone through, he would, if he had the option, rather be absent from the body. I think I told you, dealing with this once before, that I used this at the end of a two-month course of Bible teaching in Canada. There was one of those meetings at the end where the chairman said, what a lovely person I was, and they were sending all good wishes and what not. And then I said to them at the finish, I said, now you wouldn't be offended if I adopted the language of the Apostle Paul and said, now I'd rather be absent from Canada and back home with my wife and family. But none of you would misunderstand me and think that I'm going to be there in the next minute. It's going to take me a journey down to Montreal. I've got to get to the ship. I've got to go through customs. I've got to get across the Atlantic. I've got to go from Southampton. Oh, I've got a whole bit... I'm still saying I'd rather be absent from Toronto and present in London, same as the Apostle did, and we will see that we use the words uh, with a certain amount of common sense. Well, now, we've got one or two other little features uh, that um, I think demand some sort kind of a question. I say little features. Here's a question that's been ventilated. And an answer has been given in the affirmative in some cases. Will any ungodly, unsaved person be raised from the dead? The argument is that life is the gift of God. That eternal life is to those who have been redeemed and saved. Well, the scripture also says that the wages of sin is death, the wages, and that they perish. And so you could say, well, it looks as though that's the case. Well, I'm very thankful to feel this. That there are two aspects of truth with which we're associated. The positive and the negative. Now, the positive is the salvation side. The positive is the eternal life side. So we need not cause a new denomination to form as to whether we believe this or that or the other, as to what God will do with the poor ungodly world I don't think any of us can really satisfactorily answer all the questions that come to your mind when you say I don't know whether you've ever visited a home in this vicinity of this chapel and gone up some of the back stairs and looked into those rooms where those people live and then you say these people haven't believed Christ and they're going to be tormented forever and ever I wonder, you see you just wonder how far some of these people have ever had presented to them what we call the gospel of grace. They don't know even the ABC of it. So there sometimes is a very right attitude of mind, not shelving a problem, but bowing to the presence of God and say, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I don't quite know how to uh, allot this punishment. Isn't it good you haven't got the option? All judgment has been put into the hands of the Son of God, who died the just for the unjust, that we might be saved. So I say, I'm not going to quarrel with anybody if he's come to the conclusion that the only ones who will be raised from the dead are those who are going to have the gift of immortality and eternal life. Because God won't alter his plan because the majority go a long way, will he? But if there's arguments about the gift of eternal life and the gift of immortality to those who are redeemed, all then we've got a positive truth to stand for, and there's no difficulties if we take the word of God as our basis. Well, having said so far, let's try to think of uh, one or two passages that will demand a certain amount of attention. Will you turn with me to Matthew, the twelfth chapter? And I'm speaking now to somebody who is (coughs) maintaining... Uh, that only the redeemed will be raised from the dead. I'm not quoting from imagination. It's been advocated, and advocated by those who believe God's word to the very last letter. So we're not pulling it to pieces. We're only facing a difficulty. But we should be able to do that in all common honesty. Matthew 12, Uh, verse 39, He answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Well, if only the saved are raised from the dead, then those Ninevites were saved. But is that a quite legitimate thing to draw from the record that we have in the book. They repented, of course, and wore sackcloth because of the judgment that was coming, but all the annals that we get of Nineveh at that time and onwards uh, are not the records of Christian people. So here we have the men of Nineveh. Or we find it again in verse 42. The Queen of the South shall rise in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. I only put it to you. Isn't there a bare possibility then that some of the Nidivites who will be raised from the dead to condemn these that had been acting as they were, were not believers and were not putting on immortality. Shall we look back to chapter 11 for a moment? Chapter 11. It says in verse 20, Then he began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Does that mean to say all that Tyre and Sidon were all Christians? All believers? Or, let's take the extreme case verse 24. But I say unto you, that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for these. But then for these? Now you're not going to fall back on the word land, are you? And say, this is not not people, because you can't say it's going to be more tolerable for stocks and stones. The word is often used for the people. The whole city was moved when it wasn't. Not the stocks and stones of people in it. So that's a get out. That mustn't be. So here we have the extreme case of Sodom being treated more tolerably in the day of judgment than Capernaum that had heard and seen the Christ of God. I say I keep a little reservation there because if it's going to be more tolerable for the Sodom in the day of judgment then I've got to admit that somewhere there must be a space for those who were unchristian, unsaved to be in the day of judgment. And that means if they're dead that must be raised. Or well, let's take another argument. The Gospel according to John, chapter 5. The Gospel according to John, chapter 5, our Saviour is speaking about the resurrection there. Verse twenty-eight. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and they shall come forth, they that have done good, unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil, unto the resurrection of damnation, or judgment. Now, leaving, as it stands here, you could make a case, that this was the resurrection of believers, some being acceptable, and some having to be judged, as they will be at the judgment seat of Christ, that's been put forward. But, I was held back, From endorsing that, uh, because um, of a peculiar word that is used here by the apostle when he wrote the word um, evil. This particular word evil is used again by him in chapter 3. He says, Verse 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, the light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil, hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Well, now, this is in the sphere of condemnation. And the same writer John, within the space of a few verses, uses this peculiar word for evil again. Good and evil. So I say, once more, do go a bit easy. Because you mustn't lift out a verse of John to beat John. They've got to march together. So I think you'll realize that there are reasons to hold one's hand a bit. So that we don't sort of make a... a test question about this and divide where there should be unity. Let's take it a bit further. In 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. But if God spared not the angels that sinned, and cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment. They're reserved unto judgment, it says there. Then in verse 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust, unto the day of judgment, to be punished. I think that's sounding a bit definite, isn't it? And then of course, a person may remind us that there is a special word translated punished here. It's the word that is used in Matthew 25, eternal punishment, and the original meaning is to prune a tree. Well, you don't prune a tree to punish it, you prune a tree to get rid of that which is wrong and hope to develop fruit. So again, you see, it's not easy, is it, to get a cut-and-dried Black and white, hard and fast answer. Again, with regard to this word reserved, it's used both for the saved and the unsaved. 1 Peter 1.4 To an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Well, some are reserved to an inheritance and some are reserved to be punished. And in um, I think I think it's in chapter two Just look, look again. Chapter two seventeen. I'm I'm not sure about this. Oh yes. two seventeen. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom mist of darkness is reserved for ever. Well that's a mist of darkness reserved forever. Whether that's conscious or not. It's difficult to decide. But there is a reservation for some to be punished. In chapter 3, 7. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Well, I think they must be there then, don't you think so? Otherwise, it's high sounding words that have no meaning. And then, finally, I don't want to beat this too badly. I'm only airing it for the last time of this series to show that we can't always come down as I think I told you once in connection with this very subject of hope. I had a letter saying, will you not come down flat-footed with regard to Then it was all about the difference between 1 Thessalonians 4 and Colossians 3 and I replied, I can't come down flat-footed because the Apostle Paul himself who wrote it didn't. I to leave it. There are some things that you have to say, well, I've searched it, I've analysed it, I've looked it backwards and forwards, I've worked out the structure, I've got every occurrence of the word, and still I'm not quite sure. I'm sure it's better to be like that than to invent some theory to make it look plausible, and then uh, ultimately, if not here, yet in the presence of the Lord, you're discovered bolstering up that which is finally untrue. But in Acts 17 we have these words, the Apostle, is there standing before these people? He has been given them a witness, and he leads on at last, after quoting their their own poets and speaking about creation. He says, verse 30, In the times of this ignorance God winked at well, that's rather familiar, the word could be condoned. At the time of this ignorance among Gentile nations. God condoned, but now commanded all men, everywhere, to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Well, if those men at ill said, oh, we're ungodly, we won't be there. Supposing the ungodly dead are never raised. Well, what word is there to warn these people that a time will come when they will be judged. It doesn't have any meaning, does it? Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead, and all judgment is given into the hands of the Son. Well, I thought that before we brought the subject of the hope of resurrection with all its glory and its certainty, to a conclusion, I should at least ventilate one or two of these rather problematical passages so that you who are listening, you may in your turn search and see as true Bereans and in the presence of God come, as far as you humanly may, to some definite conclusions. But always be prepared to acknowledge that there are margins. The greatest of us, as well as the lowest, lowliest of us, must admit that we are standing in front of a revelation of God that has been so written that at one period nobody seems to make anything of it at all. And then the time comes when some word is illuminated and that which was a puzzle to our forefathers may become as clear as daylight to ourselves. Or there may have to be a moment when we still say at the very end of our researches we now see by means of a mirror, enigmatically. But then, in that day, we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, and we prophesy in part, or we teach and we speak in part, but then, when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. Well, I don't know whether you'll agree with me, friends, that that which is perfect has not yet come. As far as our acquaintance with the lives of one another, and the columns in the newspaper, and the things we're reading about the earth and what's coming upon it, it's very, very far from the perfect condition yet. So if that's the case, it may be in perfect harmony with our calling, that on certain occasions, and in certain directions, and under certain circumstances, we should have to walk by faith, and not by sight. And where we cannot fully interpret or understand the grammatical construction of any passage that bears upon our hope and our calling, let us remember that one thing remains unchanged, the character of our God. And where we cannot explain, we can most certainly fully, confidently trust. And so I I hope that as a consequence of going through these passages of Scripture, especially the early ones, starting as we did with Job, hearing that clarion voice, after a certain amount of cogitation, giving us the key to this very day. I know that my Redeemer lives. All blessed is the man or the woman who can get no further than Job did, but he went a long way, because the kinsman Redeemer is the pledge that because he lives, we shall live also.